This is David Spence for EnergyTradeoffs.com, and I'm here today with my friend and co-author Hannah Weissman, who is the attorney's title professor of law at the Florida State University College of Law. Thanks for sitting down today, Hannah. Thanks, David. Hannah, you've got an article that's not out yet, but you're working on it um, that that addresses some of the issues associated with the regulation of fracking. Can you tell us a little bit about what the basic project is? Sure. So the article addresses um, energy transitions in the form of drilling and hydraulic fracturing for more natural gas, um, which has in the past decade taken off, as well as the rapid increase in development of commercial solar and wind farms. And the, the article explores how both of these activities, the expansion of drilling for natural gas, which is cleaner and so it's good in a lot of ways, and the development of wind and solar, they have very widespread benefits. They tend to, the benefits tend to accrue at the state and national level, some of them locally, but they tend to have concentrated local costs. So the communities that have to host these expanding energy technologies experience many of the costs, which are often called externalities, in terms of industry is causing a cost such as noise or dust or light pollution and not necessarily internalizing or paying for those costs. It's the societies instead bearing them. Uh, and I argue that communities lack the, tip, the tools that they might otherwise have to address these costs. Many states have preempted local control in these areas. Um, there's also federal preemption. Uh, the article, in addition to talking about drilling and fracking, it discusses pipelines a little bit, so the natural gas pipelines that run through these communities. And the federal government has preempted local control over those pipelines as well. So when you preempt regulation as well as taxation, it also makes negotiation with industry harder because industry knows it's not going to be sub subject to local regulation or taxes. So it doesn't have quite as much incentive to, go, to come to the table to negotiate a resolution outside of the sort of formal regulatory context. And do you have preemption in the clean energy side as well? Uh, not, not as much. And so I use clean energy a little bit as a contrast. So in many cases, communities do have more options for negotiating with wind and solar companies because almost all states give local governments still some degree of control over renewable energy development and in, in many cases almost full control. So they can ban it if they want to. So it's an interesting contrast to look at pipelines and oil and gas on the one hand, where I call it almost a regulatory void. You've sort of taken away all those tools from communities. Renewable energy development on the other hand, where communities have all the tools, and in some cases, perhaps they're going too far in using those tools and, and uh, uh, potentially banning the activity where it otherwise might be needed. So having set up this problem of local costs concentrated in a local area and benefits being spread more widely, you, you take a look at different sort of regulatory approaches that, if they were available to local governments, might, uh, might work. And that's right. And try to evaluate them. Is that's that, right. That's what you're doing? Yeah. And, and many of those approaches have been used in the renewable energy context because these governments still have the option to use them. And so, yeah, I, I, I take... Uh, four different categories of, of approaches to controlling externalities. So one is just traditional regulation. So a community that's facing um, growing solar or wind or oil and gas development can regulate the noise levels. They can say, we don't want this decibel level near the well site or near the wind farm. Um, they can require fencing or landscaping around these in infrastructure installations. So that's traditional regulation if they're not preempted. Then there is taxation as well as other financial tools. So they could say, develop however you want, 
but we are placing a tax on the development. And if the tax were truly geared toward the externalities, it would try to get the tax would try to be tailored to those externalities. So if you have a tax on an oil and gas well, probably the most realistic tax in terms of getting at the externality would be a per well tax. Like every time you drill a well, you pay a particular tax. Right now, the taxes tend to be on the amount of oil or gas produced. You just per per volume of oil and gas produced the state gets a little bit of the tax and gives a little bit back to the local government. That doesn't necessarily get at exactly the externalities. Uh, so to the extent local governments have that type of authority, they could tax. They could also use other financial tools like requiring a bond, telling industry, put some money down with the government. If you cause damages and you don't fix them, the government's going to keep that money, that bond money, and use it. So that's a financial tool. Then there's liability. You can just define tort liability differently so, such that um, if a company acts negligently, meaning it pollutes um, resources and it had a duty to not pollute them, it can be liable for them. And then the final option is less of a law and government-based approach. is more outside of governance. That's negotiation, where a local government could say, we're not going to regulate, we're not even going to tax you, but we'd like to sit down at the table with you, the industry, and talk about how we can reduce some of these impacts. Yeah, and as you know, we had a conversation with Kristen Mendes. He's in Boston about, about the last, about that last option. They're all different, very different regulatory instruments. So yeah. how do you set about to try and evaluate them? Sure. Um, so one question is um, the... the um, Ex-ante versus ex-post approach. So regulation can prevent externalities, where and so can taxation if it adequately incentivizes industry to reduce its externalities. Um, so can tort liability. If, if industry is adequately worried about the damages, they will just not cause them to begin with. However, with both taxation and liability, it's possible industry will just go ahead and allow those damages and, and then pay after the fact. That's okay sometimes, but it, for some types of impacts, it might not be okay to allow the impact and then allow for damages payment because the damages might be so high. Um, so the extreme they example, can't be fully compensated. Right, yeah. right, right, right. Uh, they're, they're so high that that that, they, that paying the money doesn't fully redress the problem. Um, so, for example, in very rare circumstances, hydraulic fracturing can pollute underground water resources. It's not usually the fracturing itself. It's usually spills at the surface. There have been one or two instances of an underground well blowout where the fracking chemicals actually get into the water. Something like that is very hard to repair, sometimes groundwater. And pumping the groundwater up and treating it is extremely expensive. That type of problem, we might need regulation, even though it's a rare problem, to just prevent it from happening because damages might not be adequate. One might argue that with a natural gas pipeline explosion as well. They, too, are rare, but when they happen, they're very bad. Um, people, often, people who are nearby die. And while you can compensate for death, I, I think we would rather avoid, right? I mean, no one says, let's just let that damage happen. Yeah. Uh, so um, that, that's one consideration is the extent to which the tool needs to prevent versus prevent the damages rather than uh, allow the activity to cause a problem and then uh, compensation for it. Another is political economy. How feasible is this, um, is this particular instrument from the perspective of acceptance by industry, by state regulators? Are states going to be okay with the fact that a local government is taxing an industry, for example? What is likely more um, palatable from a political economy perspective? And I think there... 
um, tax, something like tax might actually be more palatable than, say, regulation. Because in both industry and maybe even states that are worried about local governments being too heavy-handed, because um, taxes can sort of be tailored to the particular issue. If it turns out that the tax is too high, maybe you can change it more easily than if you've had put in place a full regulatory regime. Um, negotiation will obviously be very politically palatable from the perspective of industry and a state that's worried about local governments regulating too much. Um, but it's only feasible if local governments have enough power to get industry to the table. Okay, so do you reach conclusions about sort of what's best for which for regulation of each technology, or do you, have, do you reach universal conclusion about what's best? I, I think that there will be different ideal tools, in part depending on the technology, because the technologies that are impacting these communities are quite similar in some ways, but different in others. So. Oil and gas wells and um, solar and wind have similar impacts during construction, say with a pipeline, actually. Um, so during the construction phase, there are trucks, there's noise, there's dust, there's pollution from air pollution from the trucks. Um, so those types of impacts would be similar, and you might want similar tools to address them. In the longer run, though, the local externalities are quite different. So solar and wind farms have more of a footprint for a longer period. Um, and oil and gas while it's being fracked, for a few months, there are lots of trucks, lots of activity at the site. There's a big, a tall rig. Um, there's a lot of equipment there. But then in the long run, well, when the well is just producing, it's pretty much just a wellhead, maybe a couple tanks. Whereas a solar or wind farm is there in the long run. It's running. The, the wind turbines are turning, causing noise constantly. Um, sometimes not much noise, but some. Um, Oil and, uh, oil and gas pipelines are typically buried, so you don't see much of them after the initial construction phase either, although um, they have some long-term impact. There's a corridor that must be maintained that's open so that the company can come in and maintain it. So I think you'd want to look at those impacts and determine, does, do some of these industries have impacts that need to be avoided rather than allowed to accrue and then allow compensation? And you could determine which tools are better depending on those differing impacts. So it sounds like you're moving toward con conclusions that are based on um, the phase of the yeah. project rather than the type of the project. So, yes. so uh, you might want local governments to have certain powers or tools to regulate differently during the construction phase yes. than during the operational phase. That's right. And, and across... Yeah. Because the technologies have different short-term versus long-term. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so I think the phase of development will matter a lot. And then I do, I think I will have some universal conclusions about which tools might be best in all of these circumstances from, for example, a political economy perspective, what's feasible. Uh, and, and that's, the focus there is really what would a state legislature put up with? Because what state legislatures are tending to do is, or the federal government has already done in the case of, gas pipelines, that they said, we just can't allow any local control here because locals are going to either, either overestimate the risks, as, as you've written about, or, or other uh, assumptions about what they'll do, and they'll just impede development too much. That's, I think that's the assumption going in, in a lot of these cases, which is why a lot of states are just using a rather heavy-handed approach to preempt local control of oil and gas development. And so a universal question is, well, when would a state legislature feel okay about a little bit of local control? Which of these tools might it, might be palatable? And that's where I think, <clears throat> again, taxes might, even though it sounds odd to say that, that a state legislature would be okay with a tax, 
the state legislature could still exercise some control over local taxation. Uh, that's, this is what Pennsylvania has done for oil and gas development. They have an unconventional gas wealthy, and I use this as a potential model for a good idea. Because the unconventional gas wealthy, it's coming from the state level. It's the state of Pennsylvania saying if local governments want to, they can choose to implement a fee on a per-fracked per well basis. For every well that's fracked, there's a fee. The fee is uniformly set by the state. So local governments can't set it at a million dollars and therefore prevent development. Um, but the fee is specifically tailored to the externalities of the well. Uh, the, it's, it's on, for every well fractured, it's a specific amount. The money goes to the state, but then a very large chunk of it goes back to local governments to address the very externalities of fracking. So road damage, um, uh, environmental problems, uh, even housing, low-income is housing issues, because when a lot of workers come into town to frack the well, they sometimes displace housing options for the local pe people that have lived in the town. So I think that that type of instrument might be good in all of these contexts, to the extent that states could figure out how to tailor it to the externalities. And I suppose there are probably also state constitutional requirements about sort of maximum amounts of taxation yes. when you just sort of add them all up. That's right. That, that's the challenge so here. State involvement would be a way of coordinating that. That's right. And so state involvement would do a couple of things. It would ensure that the, these existing limits on the ability of local governments to tax would be honored. Uh, and it would also give the state a feeling that it had some control. It wasn't just allowing local governments to uh, reg uh, regulate through taxes rather than regulation to the extent that it would overly impede that development. Because that, that tends to be the reason for preemption, again, is we don't want a patchwork of conflicting regulations. And so giving the state that centralized control but allowing local governments to tax might work well. States have done that in the renewable energy context for regulation specifically. They said we're, gonna, we're going to, in some cases, uh, set sort of a regulatory ceiling. Local governments are not allowed to regulate more stringently when it comes to wind farms. Um, but as long as they're implementing tools that are pretty much along the same lines as those that the state prefers, local governments can address specific externalities of wind farms. Sort of like cooperative federalism at the federal level. Exactly, yeah. So it sounds like a lot of the ideas you're toying with are really about um, try, trying to avoid the all-or-nothing That's right. where the state completely preempts the local government and That's forces, right. either forces something on them or, in the yeah. case of New York with fracking, prohibits them from yeah. accessing it, the benefits of it. Yeah. Um, and you're trying to find regulatory tools that uh, sort of create a, 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 semi a partially regulated landscape at the local level that allows the benefits to flow and compensates people for the cost. That's correct. That's correct. The idea is that in many cases, I, I think a lot of communities would at least partially welcome these forms of development if they felt they could adequately address the cost that they know will accrue at the local level. That is not true in all cases. Some communities are very nimbious, meaning not in my backyard. We don't want any development anywhere <laughs> within our community. We don't want any change. Um, but I, I think there are a good number of communities that, that have indicated we will cautiously welcome oil and gas development because of the, the, some of the benefits that will accrue at the local level. Or we like the idea of having wind or solar farms that will pay farmers good amounts of lease money, for example. But we're worried about the impacts. And so if you give us enough tools that we can use to address those impacts, uh, we, could, we might allow this development uh, to a certain degree. Uh, and, and I think that middle ground is really important right now. Um, natural gas 
has transitioned just rapidly away from coal. So even though fracking has very substantial impacts, I think natural gas has been a very important transition fuel. Uh, solar and wind are going to be necessary uh, infrastructural developments if we want to move towards substantially lower carbon. So we And we need natural gas pipelines if we're going to have natural gas drilling. So to some extent, we need all of these technologies. And I think it's but I think it's not helpful to just fully preempt local governments and say, because we need these, because we need to transition to um, cleaner energy sources, you just got to put up with whatever we're putting in your community, which is which is what some are arguing. There have been some proposals to sort of get rid of most environmental regulation that does exist. Because we have to build so much. We gotta, we've got to do this so quickly. We've got to move forward. We're in a rush. I think we can do this quickly, but... If a tax, for example, wouldn't take long for an industry to move ahead, uh, develop a solar wind farm, and pay the tax. It doesn't have to mean years and years of deliberation and figuring out the exact appropriate level of local regulation. There are some tools that could be implemented pretty quickly and that would not overly impede what is uh, arguably needed development. Yeah, and if we, for those of us, which include you and I, who would like to see a, a rapid transition to a cleaner energy mix, um, the need to build a lot of wind and solar, which, as you noted earlier, has sort of long-term, at least visual yes. impacts, um, and in the case of wind, probably noise and other things. Yes. Um, they're sort of tailor-made to sort of trigger fights at the local level between the, the farmer or the rancher or whoever, yes. whoever owns the land, right. which it's in, and is going to make some money off of That's it. That's right. And everybody else doesn't want to look at it. Exactly. It's kind of just like the – it's kind of like the sort of – the farmer who who can't who's the last farmer left in a town that's suburbanizing and can't, yes. and then nobody wants him to sell his farm to a developer because that's the right. rural character of the community. Yeah, it's yeah, analogous to that, right? I mean, yeah. So, um, so in that in this, that specific context, big solar farms, big wind farms. Yeah. Um, do you think taxation would do enough, or do you think we need to go further? Uh, I think taxation will not always do enough uh, because. I think some parties feel that their landscapes, which is very dear to them. I think that people who have lived in a community, particularly for a long time, they grew up there, the landscape has almost become a part of them. And, and when you interrupt that landscape, that's sort of the, one of the most objectionable things you could do. I mean, it's one thing if you put some pollution, you know, uh, on the ground. I mean, you could fix pollution. But you can't get rid of that wind farm, which is often right on the top of the local treasured hill, because that's where the most wind is. It's in the most visual, visually, um, it's, in, it's, in, it's in the place that people tend to look. And so when you see communities' objections to wind farms in particular, they say, we can see this farm from the dock at the pond where we've been swimming since we were children. And now when we go, instead of looking up at the hillside and the trees, we see wind turbines. Now, some people think that's visually appealing. Others don't. So I think even these landscape impacts, I don't know if compensation would do it. So I think we, we need other considerations here, too. And here's where I think negotiation comes in. Uh, particularly if the community has the power to tax industry, this might incentivize industry to come to the negotiating table because they know that the community has some sort of entitlement to regulate them in some way, whether that's even just putting a tax on, here's what it costs to operate in our community. Um, and if you can get industry to the negotiating table, here's where um, instruments that um, Kristen von der Wiesenbach and um, Tara Rigetti have talked about come into play. Um, these are community benefits agreements, which have been used extensively for other types of land development, like big sports stadiums. 
Um, there are also <clears throat> other types of contracts that don't – community benefits agreements tend to say, hey, if you're going to build this big thing that's going to interrupt our landscape, we used to just build a new park or school or something. Give us some other benefits that will make us feel better about that. Like oil companies do overseas when they – Exactly. And they, they, they've been primarily used overseas. It's very interesting to me that not many communities in the United States have used them. I think it's partly because communities often lack that bargaining chip because they've been preempted in the oil and gas context. I think these agreements are more common in the renewable energy context because communities have more power to regulate, and so developers have to negotiate. There are some people who would say, no matter how much you pay me, I do not want to see the landscape that I grew up with change. But it's possible that a community benefits agreement that said, we're going to preserve forever, we're going to place a conservation easement on the, this um, wildlife corridor in your town, or, or we're going we're to preserve lots of land and, and provide you with this environmental value, that type of, type of compensation might, in fact, be more appealing to certain types of people. Well, thanks very much for sitting down to talk to us, Hannah. Thank you, David.